0: Let's open our Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. The preacher, Solomon, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, the son of David, inspired by God, the wisest, richest, most able man to write this book that's ever lived on this earth, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's given us some wisdom, and we have five lessons to try to cover very quickly if we can. There is much more that could be said than what I will say. I am hoping by the grace of God and some renewed energy that we might end up with a written commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes that is more thorough and practical than is easily found today. And we can make it available on the internet and you can look at it and see things that I may skip over in just trying to give you the quick lessons here of wisdom because I am in danger of taking too long getting through this book and drowning myself in it with you, along with you. I know that some of you would say we couldn't drown, but if we spent too long in Ecclesiastes, life is short and the Bible is big. And we want to cover as much of it as we can. So, so please understand that. And it, and there are deficiencies in the book of Ecclesiastes compared to some other things for us under the New Testament. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, nor do I mean that it is less Scripture or anything like that. But we also want to know about the Lord Jesus Christ and our salvation by Him. Why did God give us the book of Ecclesiastes? Why out of our 66 books do we have this book of philosophy written by a king, written by a very wise king, a very rich king, a very powerful king... A king whom God delivered from all his enemies so that he could give his life to philosophical exploration, experimentation, and observation. Why do we have it? We have it to show that life under the sun, the life that we're living right now, your life of 168 hours a week, is vanity and vexation of spirit. Human existence has been corrupted by man, and it is vain, fruitless, worthless, profitless, without God. So, God raised up the most able man to tell us that, and it's King Solomon. And he tells us that, and he tells us in the very beginning of the book, all is vanity. He tells us in the end of the book, all is vanity. And he tells us it's not just vanity, it's vexation of spirit. It's empty, but it's a real pain getting to find out that emptiness. Which is really vain. Truly vain. That's why we have it. First reason. The first reason is to show that natural life under the sun is vanity and a vexation of spirit without God. Second, it's to show us and teach us some remedies for enjoying this life of vanity. Thank you, Lord. It could have been a hopeless book, but it's a hopeful book. It's full of hope for those who want to live according to its remedies and precepts for how we can live under the sun. Third, it gives us priorities on what's important in life. And the top priority? Fear of God. Fearing the Lord. And it's not just in 12.13. We're going to run into it in 7.18 today. It's here. Fear of the Lord. Under that, keeping His commandments, which is truly part of the fear of the Lord and why we do it. All the way down to folly and madness and everything in between. It tells us where eating, drinking, and being married fits in. It tells us that a funeral is better than a birthday party. It gives us a priority of what's important in life. And it sticks your marriage up pretty high. And it sticks wisdom up high. It puts natural wisdom in there. Natural wisdom is better than natural folly. But true wisdom, which is the fear of the Lord, is better than them all. This is why we have the book of Ecclesiastes. Life is worthless. Your life, you didn't even ask for it. You were given to it by a sovereign You were given to it by the blessed and only potentate that puts you into existence without your request or your permission. He is telling you that your life is worthless, which it is, and it's a pain while you live it. But he's told you how you can remedy that by the book of Ecclesiastes. Now let us learn a few lessons. Let's go right immediately to verses 11 and 12. The first lesson of today. Natural wisdom is a valuable asset. Ecclesiastes seven eleven. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, and by it there is profit to them that see the sun. For wisdom is a defense, and money is a defense. But the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. Right. Wonderful two verses. Here's a lesson of wisdom for your life. Here's a remedy for the vanity of life. Here's two things you want to acquire. And one's more important than the other. I love it when the Bible's so simple. Some of the verses in Ecclesiastes aren't quite so simple. But these two are simple. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. Wisdom here is primarily natural wisdom. Even if given by God, even if taught in the Bible, there's natural wisdom in the Bible that even if a pagan keeps the verses of Proverbs, he's going to have a blessed life. Do you know that? We carry a book that while it's written to us, and it's our personal, private, special proper property, even if a pagan man were to observe the precepts that are found in this book, his life is going to be good. Because these are the rules on how to live in all the spheres and aspects of our lives. But this is natural wisdom, is a good thing to have, but it says with an inheritance. An inheritance is having some money to go along with it. When a wise man also has some economic means... He can do a whole lot more good than if he's a poor wise man. And so it says, wisdom is good with an inheritance. If you've got some money and some economic and financial power, you can be of more value and do more good and find more profit to leave for your life and your legacy than if you didn't have those things. And by it, there is profit to them that see the sun. Those that come into the land of the living and get to see the sun. They didn't die as a miscarriage and they're not dead already but they're alive, they can be blessed and helped by a man who's wise and has some means to do some wise things. And he goes on to say, for money is a defense. If you've got money, you can defend yourself. If you've got money, you can open doors that other people can't open because money's a defense. It is a defense. This isn't being said as an Epicurean. This is being said as a wise man, having some savings and some economic power, which is a choice to have some to quite an extent. Although God's blessing makes it much larger and much greater in certain cases. Wisdom wisdom is a defense and money is a defense. I got them out of order. Forgive me. Wisdom is a defense and money is a defense. But when you compare the two, wisdom is the one that's able to give life. Because it saves you from death, destruction, trouble, decay, and all the things that steal at our lives. Wisdom is better. Knowledge is better. Knowledge and wisdom are used as synonyms in verse 12. A wise man with economic means can do some big things. A rich wise man commands respect and he's able to do. He doesn't just know what would be good in a situation. He's able to put it into place. And so wisdom with an inheritance is a good thing. A poor man, a poor wise man is limited and despised. 9.16 is going to tell us that. This isn't necessarily the way it should be. This is the way that it ends up being. Do you follow me? A, poor, a wise man ought to be esteemed whether he's rich or poor. But the nature of humanity is, and the nature of life under the sun, and what Solomon observed is, though a man be wise if he's poor, he's going to be despised. Chapter 9, verse 16, Solomon said, Wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Just a fact of life. It's not the way it should be. Because a man that's truly wise ought to be respected and esteemed for that wisdom. So we start off with a rich man. He commands respect and he's able to do things. A poor wise man is limited and little respected. He can't do much, like 9.16 just told us. A rich fool... Now think of there's four categories that we can draw from these two verses. A rich fool is a dangerous thing. That's a sword with no guidance. He's dangerous to himself and everyone else because he's got the means to do things, but he doesn't have the wisdom to direct. Then last of all, there's a poor fool. He's just worthless crud. No value at all to anyone. That's just the way it is. That ought to make perfectly good sense to you. You know, in this church, we do not make any difference by economic means. But we make enormous differences by whether you're wise or foolish, whether you're spiritually or carnal, because that's the way we ought to measure. We wish that every single member in this church was spiritually wise, but they're not. And it's every man's choice. And if a man chooses to be a fool, then let him be a fool. He'll be discriminated against in this church because that's how we discriminate. Philippians chapter 3 and numerous other places tell us to discriminate that way. We are to mark them that live like the Apostle Paul, who mind heavenly things, who set their affection on the Lord Jesus Christ, who count all things of this world but dumb, that they might be found in Christ and in His righteousness. Those are the ones we're supposed to set up and follow. The enemies of Christ, who mind earthly things, we're to avoid them and not follow them. But anyway, wisdom with an inheritance is good. It's a good thing. And there's profit to them that see the sun because they can do good things. Good men. Now think about this verse and the value of it for wisdom. A good father is going to teach his children two things from this lesson. He's going to teach them how to be wise. How do you teach them wisdom? By teaching them the word of God and showing them the Word of God, by living the Word of God before them, in your financial transactions, your business dealings, your relationships with other people, the way you submit and treat the government, the way you treat your wife, the way you raise the other children in the family, all those ways you can teach a child wisdom. And you pour the book of Proverbs into them. So a good father is going to take this lesson and say, I can teach my children wisdom first. You know, David said, Psalm 34, verse 11, Come here, my children, and hearken unto me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Then the second thing a father can do is leave an inheritance for his children and teach them how to save some money so that they end up being inside of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. Now, that should get you excited. Amen. This isn't Johnny's plan for financial success. This is the Word of God, Ecclesiastes 7, 11 and 12. Right. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. You're not going to have any money or any inheritance unless you do some saving. Saving requires earning in the first place and discipline in the second place, not to spend it all. What does the Bible say about a good man in Proverbs 13, verse 22? A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. A good man reads these two verses and thinks, What can I do to put these two verses into practice? I'm going to teach my children wisdom. And I'm going to have an inheritance for them. Because that's what a good man does. Can you think of some in the Bible? There was an Abraham. Abraham. Did Isaac get a decent inheritance? You bet he did. Did he teach Isaac some wisdom? He certainly did. Because we see it perpetuated in Isaac's life. And then Jacob's life. And so forth. David did the same. David was a wise man. And he had the means. And what did he use his means to do? Whose wisdom was it that came up with the idea of building a temple to the glory of God? David's wisdom. David's wisdom was, it isn't fair that I'm living in a permanent fixed dwelling place and God's being worshipped in a tent. That was David's wisdom. But if he didn't have any money, all he could do is sit around and think about it. But he had the means to do that. And that's a wonderful story in the Bible, a historical event of David not only having the idea of the temple, but paying for its construction. How about the great woman of Shunem? Remember her in the Bible? The great woman of Shunem. That, wasn't, that doesn't mean she was great in size. And that doesn't mean she was great in political influence. She was great because she had this. She had money. What did she do with it? She had an idea, and she was able to put legs to it. What was it? She wanted to put an addition onto her house for the prophet to come and to be able to live with them. And she did it. And whenever he was in that part of the country, he could stop in and he had his room all set up and the Bible even tells us about some of its furnishings. That was a great woman of Shunem who fulfilled Ecclesiastes 7, 11 and 12. Do we have any in the New Testament? Is there a Barnabas there in the New Testament? He was from the land of Cyprus and having lands, he sold them and brought the proceeds and dropped them at the apostles' feet and said, build this church up with whatever financial obligations you have. Let's take care of it. Did Philemon do that? Yes, he had refreshed many. How about Gaius? Had he refreshed many? Nothing in this verse contradicts the danger of the love of money. It's just wisdom. While we're living here, let's learn to be wise and let's accumulate a little bit of financial ability to do some wise things. And that's what we should teach our children. And if you children haven't been taught it, I'm teaching it to you right now. Right. Those are two goals you want to have. Man, when you go to work, when you go to work, one of the greatest reasons to go to work and to earn a living and to have a business and to try to get income out of it is not for yourself but to be able to do wise things with it, I'm talking about your family upgrading your your level of clothing or your bed sheets. That's part of it. Oh, I still I still can't believe I went off onto that rabbit trail a few weeks ago. But anyway, this is what you should be teaching and learning. And when you go to work, what are you thinking about when you try to when you're looking at a possible promotion or you have an opportunity to work some overtime or you see an advantage in your business to generate more income? To be able to put legs to wise ideas for the kingdom of heaven. Those of you in this assembly that are in the top 25% of the earners in this congregation, you're there by a combination of a couple of things. Time and chance, God's blessing and mercy, and your diligent efforts. But you're in that situation. If you're in the top 25% of earners, you make sure you're a wise man, and you make sure that you're using it to put legs to some of the things, the good things and the profitable things that you can do to them that are under the sun. God's given you that opportunity, and he hasn't given that to all men. You're blessed. Do you know what Jacob said? I am not worthy of all the blessings and all the mercies and of all the truth that you have shown me. There was a man that had so much stuff, he had to divide it into two companies to travel comfortably. And he had truth going with it. That's a great man who's able to do many things wisdom is a defense, it's the power of right judgment it knows what to do, when to do it where to do it and how to do it it knows what to say, when to say it, how to say it where to say it, to be of most value and most profit to God and men it knows what is best for a situation you had our brother Chris read to us from 2 Samuel 20 that that wise woman was able to appeal to Joab are you going to destroy a whole city of Israel just for one man I wish that our nation was that wise Do you know how we could have been as wise as the old woman of of Abel? We could have sent an email to the nation of Iraq a few years ago and said we want Saddam's head in a basket in Jerusalem in 48 hours. If not, we'll nuke you into a sidewalk. Why in the world should we be over there forever? But that's another story. Just think about the wisdom of that. How much money did Joab have to spend trying to take down the whole city to get to this enemy of God. He didn't waste time there, because the woman saved him the waste. He was going to do it, because he liked big military operations. Oh, they raised up a ramp against the city walls, and they're up there with their telephone poles pounding concrete away, and they're going to just starve these people out and cost the nation a fortune. Ever thought about costing us a fortune? Give me a few minutes. We'll toss his head over the wall. That's a wise woman. Wisdom is a defense. You'll never have any money for defensive help unless you practice how Solomon told you to get it. Is Solomon the one that told us how to have some money for such times? He said, Go to the ant, thou sluggard, and learn that while the times are good, they set aside for when the times are poor. Chapter 6 and chapter 30 and verse 25. And you're never going to have wisdom unless you study the Word of God. Wisdom isn't poured into your head. Wisdom is something that you seek after like it's hidden treasure. Solomon taught us that as well in Proverbs chapter 1 and Proverbs chapter 2. And do you know why he wrote the book of Proverbs? To help you get into the wisdom side of these two verses. And then he told you how to get into the financial side of these two verses in the book of Proverbs as well. It's to, it's to your blessing. We're thankful to God. You know, God puts us together in a wonderful way. Not everybody can be equal, and there's not a thing wrong with dividing people up just the way God made them and, and the, on the basis of the efforts that they've put forth and God's favor upon those efforts. But those in this congregation have been blessed to have the means and have been blessed to have the wisdom, may they, by the grace of God, put legs to that wisdom and do good things, and in most cases, they do. And we can be very thankful for that as a church. But if you look what it says between the two things. If you've got money and you've got wisdom, look what it says in the second part of verse 12. The excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. It is far better for you to be able to communicate the truths of God's Word and the precepts of God's Word and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and the God of heaven and fearing Him and the forgiveness of sin and all the things that wisdom includes and contains. Natural wisdom plus spiritual wisdom, I'm using right now for my example, it's far superior. Don't be confused. Sometimes the Bible, when it uses wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and, and uses them back and forth because they're basically synonyms of each other, like it is right here. That was the first lesson from chapter 7. I love it when the Lord gives priorities. I'm sorry, I'm not ready to go on yet. Nothing in this verse contradicts the love of money that's warned against in the rest of the Bible. How does wisdom give life to them that have it? It saves them from foolish destruction. It saves us in so many different ways if we know what to do, when to do it, how to do it, where to do it. That is just a wonderful blessing from God, and the Bible teaches us those things. It teaches us those things for natural living, and it teaches us those things for spiritual living. It tells us how to please God and how to please men. It tells us how to be successful with God and successful with men. But it's got to be put into practice, and you've got to learn it. The next lesson is in verses 14 through 16. Now, I draw a line between 16 and 17, and I draw it for reasons. But I want to tell you that when I give you these little lessons, my chunks that I'm giving you are arbitrary. Because the Word of God just is run on. You know, these these verse distinctions that we have are only a few hundred years old. The chapter distinctions we have are not very old. And my little the little divisions that I make are to help you get a bite-sized portion that you can understand so that you can swallow it. That's why I do it. I do not want to violate the context of a larger section of, of Ecclesiastes by taking a small bite. And I do try to keep that context in consideration when I'm studying. And I will mention it to you. But I try to make some chunks that are fitting very tightly together And that will help you digest it. The next lesson from chapter 7 is verses 13 through 15. Consider the work of God. For who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. God also hath set the one over against the other. To the end that man should find nothing after him. All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. God's providence should provoke fear. God's providence should provoke humility as we submit to him and his choices in our lives. It says in verse 13, consider the work of God. We should stop and think about what God does in the earth's affairs. Who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? He is not talking about teeth, because we can take crooked teeth, tie them together with some wire, and make them straight. If you've got kinky hair, you can take it to Carrie Taylor in our oh, Carrie Green, in our own church, and she knows a Japanese hair straightening therapy with particular chemicals that will straighten your hair as straight as any one you've ever seen, and it'll last for months. It'll cost you $200 an hour, but she can help you do that. She'll tell you about it. There, God can make some things crooked. You may have naturally curly hair. We can straighten it. Pay the 200 rather than coming to me with an iron. If God makes something crooked, we can straighten little things, but we're not talking about little things right here. The next verse tells us what we're talking about. We're talking about the days of adversity and the days of prosperity. We're talking about business cycles. We're talking about business ups and downs. We're talking about getting a good job, losing a good job, being stuck in a poor job. We're talking about the affairs of nations. We're talking about de- recessions. We're talking about political changes. We're talking about nations overthrowing nations that severely affect your life. When God makes something crooked, can you make it straight? we got a pretty crooked government right now. Can we make it straight? No. no. We have to pray for it and submit to it and humble ourselves and beg God to help us survive under it. Amen. You're not going to change it. All right. Consider the work of God. For who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? The next verse is very helpful to understand what we're talking about. We're not talking about teeth or hair. In the day of prosperity be joyful. If you were a farmer and you had a day of prosperity, that meant sowing was able to take place on time with good, favorable conditions. All year long, you were protected from pestilence, excessive rain, storms, fire, lightning. You were protected from bugs, insects, diseases that would affect your crop. You were allowed to get your crop out of the field. You were allowed, the Lord sent an early in the latter rain to fill it with moisture so that when you did Harvested at the end of the season, you had the ultimate optimum yield per acre that you could get. You cannot affect those things. God is the one that does those things. So it says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. When God sends prosperity your way, rejoice toward Him. Be glad toward Him. That doesn't mean we don't celebrate together, but it's all to the Lord. I love that aspect of our congregation. That we love to get together to celebrate God's goodness to various ones of you. When you sell a house, we celebrate. When you buy a house, we celebrate. We look for occasions to celebrate. Because God is good. And it's a wonderful thing to do to get together to rejoice and to give God the thanksgiving for all the good things he does. And he is so good. That's what it means in the day of prosperity, be joyful. Be thankful. Don't be proud. You didn't do it. These are things that you couldn't straighten and things you couldn't curl. This is God making the difference. So in the day of adversity, be thankful. I mean, the day of prosperity, be thankful. and the day of adversity, consider. In the day of adversity, why is this happening to me? I know where it's coming from. This is the rule that we're to get right here. We just sang one great song. God moves in a mysterious way. Oh, we sang a good song. That second verse was telling us that we ought to view the changes in our lives as the hand of God because that's really believing God's sovereignty. When you see it in your daily life and you're able to submit to it when it's a sovereign choice that you might not have made for yourself. In the day of adversity, consider. What should you consider? In the day of adversity, you should consider that God may be chastening you for sin. So wisely consider your ways. Remember Haggai 1 all the way down through verse 11 of the first chapter? Consider your ways. They were working hard. Those people were working hard. They were sowing their fields. They were trying to reap them, but God was blowing against them. God put holes in their bags so that their wages that they had earned, these are the words of God in Haggai chapter 1, were just dribbling out. They were not getting ahead because they had not put the house of God first in their lives. If you do not put The worship of God and His assemblies first in your life, you're going down. Let me close the elevator door for you. You're on your way down. You're already down. But you're going further. It's so simple. It's so easy. Because that's what the Bible teaches. Consider your ways. You sowed much, but you reaped little. Because I was blowing against it. The book of Haggai is perfect. The total book is a perfect explanation For this statement, consider in the day of adversity. The prophet told the nation of Israel, go get a calendar. Mark mark the day. Circle it. You know that we're in the middle of winter. Nothing's been sown and nothing's been reaped. So, obviously, I am not telling you something based on golden fields of grain. It's all in the book of Haggai. Mark your calendar. I promise you that from this day, because you have laid the foundation for my house, that you will have a huge harvest. Mark it on your calendar. Amen. It's the book of Haggai. In the day of adversity, consider. Because it comes from God. Don't blame it on some man. You get fired in the job. You get fired. Some man has to fire you. So you blame the man? <laughs> Who's he? He's a puppet. Amen. Right. He's in the hand of God. God took away your job. Now, if you were foolish about it, you know what you should consider real quickly, don't you? You should consider getting down on your knees, confessing your sin for being a slothful servant to the God of heaven, then getting up from your knees and going to find that boss and getting down on your knees the second time and begging him for forgiveness for being a slothful servant. Then writing a letter to anybody that it takes and making any restitution that you should make because you've been slothful. But remember... It's all in the hands of God. It's God making something crooked. And so in the day of prosperity, we we rejoice. In the day of adversity, we consider because it came from God. What lesson is God trying to teach me? Your adverse circumstances could be for God's glory. If you can't see any fault in your life that you were a great employee, that you had the kingdom of God and his righteousness first, and you lost your job anyway, it could be for the glory of God. Then give him glory. Lord, I hate losing my job, but I know I'm loving you right now. And unless you reveal some sin to me that's hidden in my heart, I know that I'm following you. I was as faithful as I could be on that job. I'm going to give you the glory. Have mercy upon me and shorten the lesson. Job should have prayed that. Elihu said his lesson could have been shortened. You know, sometimes God does things, adverse circumstances like the man born blind in John chapter 9. And you're supposed to consider. That one was for the glory of God. And that lesson, an entire chapter of the New Testament is there for our learning. Adverse circumstances could be for your perfection. They could be a trial of your faith. So grow in faith. Be thankful for them and say, thank you Lord for increasing my faith and building patience in me because I'm not a very patient person. But I'm thankful for learning patience by this event. It could be the consequences of your own sin. So that's what you should examine that as well. Just the natural consequences of past foolishness. If you get knocked out of a job and it's hard for you to get one, you should, go, you should look back at how you prepared yourself to have a transferable skill. And if you didn't prepare yourself to have a transferable skill, then all you're doing is reaping some natural consequences of your own foolishness. God will be merciful if you'll admit your foolishness. And ask Him to help you. Job did well in the day of adversity and prosperity. In the day of prosperity, he begged God to have mercy upon his family. In the day of adversity, he fell on his face and worshiped God. He responded well both ways. Why does God do all these things? The last part of verse 14, to the end, that man can find nothing after him. Because there is nothing outside the control and power of God. God is going to raise you up and put you down. We just sang it. God is going to bless you with good times. He's going, to take, he's going to send you some bad times. And the whole purpose of it is so that you don't find anything after God. God is in charge of your life. And He wants you to praise Him for the good things He sends. He wants you to consider when He sends you some times of adversity. But in both cases, we're to humbly submit and glorify Him. Included. Included in God's providential dealings with men. We find in verse 15... That Solomon had observed, among all the things that he had seen in the days of his vanity, that sometimes a just man might die early and a wicked man might live a long life. That is not the ordinary rule. The ordinary rule, this is, this is where people get confused and understand the Bible. In one or two minutes, I'll try to help you understand the Bible. There are so many different factors that weigh and bear on your life. That you cannot single one out and make it an absolute rule and put the others in contradiction to it. If If God gives us a general rule in the Bible, we are supposed to believe it. And the general rule is that righteousness extends life and wickedness shortens life. But there are a whole lot of other factors that influence life expectancy. And God is operating all these different things at all times. What was the number of that last song? I should know. One twenty eight. Let's see if we just all sang it. You don't need to turn. I'll read it to you. Just the second verse. Deep in unfathomable bold minds of never failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Unfathomable. That means you can't figure them out. And sometimes they appear to contradict but they are not contradictory. Amen. Wisdom extends life and foolishness shortens life. But sometimes God takes the righteous early because He wants to show them a favor by getting them out of this ugly place. That's Isaiah 57, the first two verses. He says He takes the righteous and people look at it and wonder, why did that good man die so young? Because God wanted Him with him. I mean, was it a bad thing that happened to Enoch that you heard about last Sunday? That the Lord took him so that he was with God? Does that contradict the fact that righteousness extends life? Not at all. That is an exception. In all good legal documents, there is going to be a statement, all other things being equal. Or in a good description of some general proposition, you're going to add the qualifying statement, all other things being equal. All other things being equal, righteous men live longer, wicked men die sooner. All you have to do is look at Hollywood's life expectancy and compare it to the life expectancy of the United States in general. Hollywood dies at about half. The higher you are in prominence, fame, and popularity, the sooner you die. Go check out all the rock stars that I grew up under in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. Go check out the Janis Joplins, Jimmy Morrisons, Jimi Hendrixes, and others. Check out the James Deans and all those profligate, fornicating God blaspheming individuals that lived. They die young. Right. The book of Proverbs teaches that over and over. What does it say wisdom's going to add to your life? Many days, many years. It says it over. What's what's foolishness going to bring you? Death. Why do you discipline your child to save his soul from death and hell? You're supposed to save him that way. So when we come into this verse, we see that Solomon observed that sometimes a righteous man would die young. And a wicked man would prolong his life in his wickedness, and he saw that under the providence of God as well, who consider the work of God, what God makes crooked, don't you try to make straight. You've got to remember that God is operating under a whole whole lot of propositions that are taught in the Bible, not just one. He's doing all kinds of things. Debt doesn't work. But sometimes debt does work. Why does debt work sometimes? Foolish debt, excessive debt, because it's the prosperity of fools. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 32. So that they follow their prosperity rather than the word of God. Our nation's doing that right now. Because most everyone in this country lives so luxuriously, they don't care about the debt this nation is building up. But it's the prosperity of fools. That's verses 13 through 15. In the providence of God, we are to humble ourselves to it. And we're going to have days of prosperity and days of adversity. You know, you can all take care of yourselves in the day of prosperity, can't you? And we need each other sometimes in the day of adversity. But if we prepare ourselves ahead of time, we'll be well prepared. Verses 16 through 18. Be not righteous over much, neither make thyself overwise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Be not overmuch wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldest thou die before thy time? It is good that thou shouldest take hold of this. Yea, also from this withdraw not thine hand. For he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. Another great lesson. Now you may be asking yourself, why did you draw a line between verses 15 and 16 since it appears That verses 16 and 15 are closely related. Because I don't believe the righteousness in verse 16 is at anything like the righteousness in verse 15. The righteousness in verse 15 and 14 is the righteousness of a truly just man. It's real righteousness. Because it, it bothered Solomon that this just man who lived righteously would die young. It would only bother him if it was real righteousness. The righteousness that is in verse 16 is not real righteousness. Because how can you have too much of that? Listen. Can you have too much of righteousness? Real righteousness? Properly defined? Never. Can you have too much of wisdom? Properly defined? Never. Look at the 17th verse. This this has to be a new thought. Look at the 17th verse. It says, Be not overmuch wicked, neither be thou foolish, Why shouldest thou die before thy time? Now, I thought in verse 15, he had said that wickedness could extend your life. Are you with me? For those of you who want to see how the verses work together, are you with me? In verse 15, wickedness extended life. But in verse 17, wickedness shortens life. Therefore, we must have a little bit of difference between the lesson of verses 13 through 15 and the lesson of 16 through 18. i got to go on. I hope you see it. You're getting in three minutes what it takes me three hours, and it's generally true. I never want to misdivide one of God's verses. But there is a division between 15 and 16. When it says, be not overmuch righteous, it's talking about a man-made righteousness that goes to excess and destroys your life because you don't enjoy the good things that God gave us to enjoy, because you've got some monastic, nun-like approach to life. Oh, thank you. I thought for a while I was in a morgue. Thank, I, listen, you know I don't need amens. I sometimes wish we had a shouting Baptist church. But I... Brethren... Be not overmuch righteous. That can't be righteousness as defined by God because we never have enough of it. Amen. We can't be the wisdom defined by God because we don't have enough of that. It's wisdom taken to extremes and trying to figure things out and adding it to the Word of God. And there are verses in the Bible that tell us, did you hear the passage Eric read? Judge not by appearance, right. but judge righteous judgment. That's real righteousness. Those Pharisees, they were taking a law of God that said on the Sabbath day no work was to be done, and they were not allowing the Lord Jesus Christ to heal a man on the Sabbath day. That is overmuch righteousness. That is so that is being so righteous you deprive a man of a healed body. That is wickedness. Why should you destroy yourself? And if you applied that to your family, there are people that have just said, Well, I'm not going to drink any wine, and alcohol's bad, and beer is the devil's The devil's poison and blah blah blah, on they go, and they miss one of God's great blessings. Now, if you want to miss it, we're going to let that be your matter of liberty, but don't you try to teach it to the rest of us. Because, and we're not drunkards, but boy, a glass of wine has certain properties that God put in it, not man, that are very good properties. And if we're overmuch righteous, we destroy ourselves by cutting off that that avenue a glass of good red wine along with a good piece of meat and a loaf of bread Gave us. cut the bread Dr. Atkins <laughs> you put those three things together God knew it was fine dining and guess what things haven't changed one bit fine dining is still yes. a glass of wine a good piece of flesh and a loaf of bread I don't care what you pay, that is what you're going to get served the higher up you go. It's just going to be a richer selection of meat, and it's going to be a rarer vintage of wine, and it's going to be a finer piece of bread. That's all. Amen. Hasn't changed a bit. The Bible is so good. But if we say, I once heard about a drunk man who got drunk from wine, therefore wine can't be used, as so many teetotalers do, they don't understand the word temperance, which means the moderate, disciplined use of such a thing as wine, then they lose out on it. They're overmuch righteous. Be not over righteous overmuch, neither make thyself overwise. Why shouldst thou destroy thyself? The Pharisees were that way. Do you remember on the Sabbath day, Jesus and his disciples were walking through a cornfield? It was the Sabbath. They were hungry. The disciples grabbed some corn. It's not the kind of corn you're thinking about, but anyway, it doesn't matter. If you've got to have an ear of corn in your, in your eyes, in your mind's eye, then go ahead. They grabbed some grain that was in the field, some corn, rubbed it off in their hands and ate it. They were hungry. Pharisees jumped all over them. Don't you know that your disciples just violated the Sabbath day? This I love the Lord Jesus Christ and I love these principles. Amen. And this is real wisdom. Real wisdom is not going by the black and white. Real wisdom is finding out the sense of the black and white. Right. The Pharisees had the black and white. They could quote the Bible from the middle to the out, outer sides. They knew the middle verse of the Bible, and they could quote the number of ver- the words, in, words in a book of the Bible. They knew all the particular facts and statistics. You can read about in the history of the Pharisees, but they didn't know the sense. Jesus said, you do err, not knowing the Scriptures. What did David do when he was hungry? This is Jesus asking the Pharisees who knew the Bible inside and out. What did David do when he was hungry? Did he go into the tabernacle and eat the showbread? And he was guiltless. Do you know what the Bible says in the black and white? No one but a priest can eat the showbread. Amen. Right. You say, how in the world did David touch that bread? And I've been over this before with you. But do you know what? I'm giving you wisdom. And it's not for me. I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord for showing me things like this that blow apart Phariseeism. Jesus said, Do you remember David? You love your scriptures. Do you remember David? The black and white said David couldn't touch the showbread. But David was hungry. And David knew me better than you know me. And David took that showbread, chopped it up with his sword, threw some salami on it, and had sandwiches with his men. And he was guiltless. How did he know to do that? I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Amen. That bread was just for a ceremonial purpose. And if, you, if David had gone in there on a day when his belly was full and had just tipped that over irreverently, God would have struck him dead. But because he was hungry, God allowed him to use that bread because he did it very humbly. If you go read the passage. God killed Uzzah when they moved the Ark of the Covenant the wrong way. But God killed no one when Hezekiah held the Passover in its wrong time in the calendar. Right. What made the difference? David could have had the priest carry it. There was no contingency or exigency or emergency. Hezekiah had an emergency. He didn't want to wait ten whole months to have the Passover. He wanted to do it right then. God saw the emergency and God honors it. We may run into cases like that. Do you understand the wisdom? If you hang us and yourself on the black and white without getting the sense of the black and white, you're no better than these Pharisees. You ought to go join a convent and be a nun for the rest of your life. Go join a monastery and be a monk for the rest of your life. The Bible has a sense on it. Jesus teaches us the sense. I'm giving you an example. If you go to Mark and read the very same event of grabbing the corn, rubbing it in your hands and eating it, Instead of saying, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, he said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus taught us a principle of wisdom there. The only reason I gave that Sabbath was to help you rest. If there's something on the Sabbath day you can do to help yourself rest, go ahead and do it. Amen. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you know what Jesus said about the Pharisees? They lay burdens on your back and they don't even use one finger to lift that burden. Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. We have got to be careful that we do not... When others outside these walls call us Pharisees and legalists, they don't even know what the words mean. And Listen, it would take them ten years of study to get to where we are right now. They have no idea of what I'm talking about right now. It's at an entirely different level. They think that anyone that requires something out of their membership is a legalist. A legalist in the Bible is somebody that requires circumcision to get to heaven. Right. I'm not angry. Oh, just against error. I love truth. Amen. Those words from Jesus. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. David knew that without ever having the verse. How did he know that? Because he walked with God. Right. He knew God. I've told you before, when he took that sandwich of showbread, it's hard for me to even say the words. When he took that sandwich of showbread and took the first bite, why didn't he die like Uzzah when he touched the ark? Because he knew the heart of God, and he knew the wisdom of God, and he knew the righteousness of God, and we're talking about real wisdom in this passage. Don't just, oh, can I? Brethren, I am so sorry. You have no idea that I want to race through the book of Ecclesiastes, but there's too much here and you have to learn these things. Right. I'm a, Amen. Don't take the clock down because it has a valuable service, but I hate that thing back there. It's got hands waving at me. They're turning so fast. Will you turn to a passage in Colossians? I want you to see Colossians chapter 2. You children think that we're strange and we make you do some weird things. Yesterday, a whole bunch of Seventh-day Adventists had to go to church on Saturday. Do you know how weird that is? Do you know what? When those Seventh-day Adventists went home after church and he said, Daddy, can we have a pizza to sit around with the family and talk about what we heard at church on Saturday? Daddy said, no, we can't have a pizza unless it's a cheese pizza. And if he was a strict Seventh-day Adventist, he wouldn't even let you have a cheese pizza. Because their false prophetess, Ellen Harmon White, went to heaven and saw in the Ten Commandments that the commandment about the Sabbath day was highlighted. That it's the most important thing in the whole world. That anybody that worships on Sunday has taken the mark of the beast. Now that's weird. Right. Do you know where they get it from? By being over much righteous and over wise. They try to out thank God. I want you to remember this about the Sabbath day. No one before Moses, when he came down from Mount Sinai, had ever heard of or kept the Sabbath day. That's right. No one. You say, well, what about Genesis chapter 2? It says in Genesis chapter 2 that God hallowed the seventh day because that's the day he rested. Who wrote Genesis chapter 2 and when did he write it? Moses, Moses wrote it after he came down from Mount Sinai. No one kept the Sabbath day in the book of Genesis. Amen. They'd never heard of it. Can I prove it? There isn't a single reference to it in the book of Genesis about any of the contemporary people living in that book keeping it. When it was introduced to Israel, they had trouble keeping it because they didn't understand it. The first couple of weeks they took their manna home and didn't have enough because they thought they were going to go out the next day. You can read about it. Third, why did God give the Sabbath? It was a special sign between him and Israel and no one else it was to make up for the fact that they had to be bondmen in Egypt for 215 years. That's why he gave them the Sabbath. And the Apostle Paul blew it apart in Colossians chapter 2 and said, let no man judge you in respect of a Sabbath day. In Acts chapter 15, when all the elders and apostles got together of the New Testament church to determine what part of the Old Testament law applied to New Testament Christians, they had the perfect opportunity to become Seventh-day Adventists but they all chose to remain Baptists. They did not bring the Sabbath forth from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Amen. Don't you ever let a Seventh-day Adventist? I get written by them every week. I enjoy it. So, so... If, I just gave you some, some great stuff. Right. And it's, it's, it's all in the Bible. Right. They just don't want to read the Bible. Yes. Amen. Right. Every one of them I write and say, when I get to the end, I say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that you want to pretend that you're a Jew following Moses under the Old Testament. I wish you would come and join us, because we're Gentile Christians following Jesus Christ under the New Testament. Amen. <laughs> Amen. I'm not haughty when I say it, I'm just thankful to God, and I really sincerely wish they would come and join us. Right. Look at Colossians chapter 2. i I'm. Be not righteous over much, neither be overwise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Why ruin your life? Watch this. As another explanation, oh, before I get to it. 1 Timothy chapter 4, does it tell us that the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the, depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils? Amen. What's a doctrine of the devil? Celibacy. The ministers of God, supposedly those closest to God, being unable to get married. That is a doctrine of the devil. Why destroy yourself? Listen, I thought I was destroyed until December 31st, 1976. Do you know what I got on December 31st, 1976? Sherry! I thought I was destroyed till then. God couldn't and didn't. I was crazy till December 31st, 1976, because I was destroyed. And the priests of Rome are destroyed because they have that crazy vow of celibacy. Right. Then they have a vow of poverty. You've got to sell everything you own, and you can own and have nothing. The Bible never tells us that. Do you know what the Bible tells the rich in First Timothy chapter 6? Enjoy your wealth. Right. God hath given us richly all things to enjoy. Those are in the words to the rich. Enjoy your wealth. Be willing to communicate it. Be ready to distribute it, but enjoy it. Not until there's a real need should you part with it. We are not communists. Communists are the stupidest people that the earth has ever seen. It's never worked. It never could work. Even if it was set up in ideal circumstances, it cannot work. It works the way God, true economic distribution works the way God set it up. The rich are to trust in God, enjoy their wealth, be willing to communicate it, ready to distribute it, waiting for a real need. And when their trust is in God, guess what? When there's a real need that calls for a lot of coin, they pop because their trust is in God and they don't care about their money. Right. I said all that because of the vow of poverty that the church of Rome places upon its servants. But look at Colossians chapter 2. This is a Seventh-day Adventist passage. Follow it. The Seventh-day Adventists worship on Saturday, and they don't let their people eat meat. If they do let their people eat meat, there's so many variations of them. If they do let their people eat meat, they can't eat pork. Because pork was outlawed in the Old Testament. Colossians 2, verse 16. Colossians 2, 16. Let no man, including the Seventh-day Adventists, therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days. Don't let any man ever put a rule that binds you in any of these matters, because these things have passed away. Verse 17, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. The visions of Ellen Harmon White are an example. And not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, here's what we're to get. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, Old Testament tradition and laws of di- dietary laws, if you're dead from those things, why as though living in the world are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Are you able to understand all those words? I have preached through that phrase by phrase before. But the bottom line is, don't you dare let a man steal from you the honor of satisfying your flesh by eating what you want and drinking what you want. Because their touch-not-taste-not-handle-not rules, which they say you're going to perish if you do them, are wrong. Don't you let a man beguile you that way. They have a show of wisdom. Do we need that verse to really understand Ecclesiastes chapter 7? Be not overwise... They have a show of wisdom. Their show of wisdom is in verse 23, in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body. Do you know that there is such a thing as too much self-denial? It's will worship. Right. It's too much self-denial. I love the Word of God. There's a road in front of us. And it's crowned, and it's got a yellow line down the middle, and that's right where we want to be. There is a ditch on the one side that's lasciviousness, which is overmuch wickedness, which God would cut you off like Ananias and Sapphira for being profane and wicked. But there is another ditch of being too strict, too righteous like the Pharisees, and he cut off and destroyed all of them as well, and he told them, how shall ye escape the damnation of hell? Do you, are you with me? That's the lesson from Ecclesiastes 7, verses 16 through 18. And then do you know what Solomon says? Get a hold of this and don't let it go. Amen. The man who fears the Lord shall come forth of them all. Do you know where the man, the man who fears the Lord is? He is on the yellow line, on the crown of the road. He's avoiding both ditches and we don't want to get near either ditch. I hate lasciviousness. Those men who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, Jude chapter 1, are terrible men that God's going to judge. But I hate Phariseeism just as much because Jesus Christ had to deal with the Pharisees all of his life. And he said, beware of the leaven and the doctrine of the Pharisees. They were the straightest sect, the most conservative denomination among the Jews. We don't want either of them. We want to go down the middle of the road. Not the middle of the road by our making. The middle of the road by God's making. When we say balance, we don't mean we're going to balance things. We mean the balance of God's Word. I'm so sorry. Verse 18 of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. It is good. It is good. All is vanity. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. When that man who said that says it is good, we ought to pay attention. There are good things we can have in this vain and vexing world. It is good that thou shouldest take hold of this. Yea, also from this withdraw withdraw not thine hand. Don't ever let go of it. The man who fears the Lord shall come forth of them all. Did you hear that this morning from Psalm 25? The man that fears the Lord, his soul shall dwell at ease. His seed shall inherit the earth. The Lord will show him his secret and his covenant. Did you hear it? Did you hear Psalm 112? Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord and delighteth greatly in his commandments. Wealth and riches shall be in His house. His seed shall be mighty upon the earth. His righteousness endureth forever. His enemies will be overthrown. Get a hold of it and never let it go. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. This is the answer to the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm sorry we didn't make more progress. I wanted to get all the way through the end of the chapter. But it's time for us to take a break. I'm sorry for being so loud. I'm sorry for a lot of things. But I hope you've heard the Word of God. I hope you love the Word of God. I hope that you've learned a few things. That wisdom with an inheritance is a good thing. And you can have both by diligent efforts in God's blessing. I hope you've heard that what God makes crooked, you can't make straight. Therefore, in the day of prosperity, rejoice. In the day of adversity, consider. Because they're both from God. And I hope that you've learned you can be too righteous. Righteous. In your matters of Christian liberty, you can press them too hard too far. And you can try to be too wise. Don't do it. Don't destroy yourself. Trust God's mercy in how He presents things in the Bible. And don't be over wicked because He can cut you off. How do you steer between the two? Lay hold of this and don't let go. The fear of the Lord. Solomon hinted at it a few times like right here. And he's going to conclude... Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter of observing how we should live. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.